When he was 15, Lee was living illegally in the United States. He'd come over from China, and he worked in a series of Chinese restaurants in small towns in Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York. He didn't speak English, though he wanted to. Didn't go to school, though he wanted to. Instead, he and the other illegal immigrants working in these restaurants lived in tiny apartments, sometimes in the back of the restaurants, sleeping on bunk beds, working 12 hours a day, six days a week. The, the one thing that I can tell you is that we have really like little contact, you know, we did a little contact with other people. You know what I mean? The thing that's, that, that must have been so strange, though, is that you're working in a restaurant, and so you would see all these people come in, and you would see families with kids and people your own age, and it must have just seemed like they were on the other side of some sort of wall yeah. that you could never climb over. Yeah, it's kind of, I feel like it's a different world. Do you know what I mean? I, it's like people don't even see you sometimes if you, if you work behind a restaurant. Yeah. Say, so sometimes you feel mad, you feel angry, that you know, you can't be like them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you try to, um, to think about why. I, I can't find a reason. We talked about this a while, and finally I told Lee that it seemed like he was living in a kind of limbo. Not his old life in China, not a real American life. And he agreed. Limbo, yeah. yeah right between, uh, somewhere between. Yeah. yeah. You don't know where it is, actually. Now, you know, the, the idea of limbo comes from, uh, it comes from the church. Uh-huh. And, and, and originally it was used to describe um, people who aren't going to heaven, yeah. but they aren't bad enough for hell. Yeah. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know what this means, yeah. Which country is the heaven and which country is the hell? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know. You've heard. Okay, this is a TV show, right? In China. Mm-hmm. In China, it's very. It's called Peking People in New York. Do you know what I mean? People in New York. Yeah, you know, you know the city Peking. Sure. Right? Well, Be- Beijing. What? Yeah. Beijing. Well, okay. This is, a, this is the title of the TV show, and every time the TV show comes out, every time an episode comes out, there's a quote. So if you like the person, send the person to New York. Because it is heaven. Do you know what I mean? If you hate a person, right? Uh-huh. Also send a person to New York because it is hell. <laughs> <laughs> but every time you see the, the episode, you see this cold. I was, that was one of great, I, I thought it was fun. Oh yes, America can be heaven, it can be hell. But today on our program, American Limbo. Stories of people who somehow have ended up living completely outside the grid of normal American life. We have three stories for you in three acts. Act one, the family that flees together, trees together. I know that does not make a lot of sense right now, but believe me, it it will. It will. Act two, what's French for a strike three? An American parent abroad tries to make his kid more American using the powerful force that is American baseball. And how? How is it that any kid could resist that? Act three, it's Julie Andrews' world. Sylvia just lives in it in which one girl takes a tape recorder to college and documents her first year in just 11 minutes. From WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, this is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Act one. This is the story of a family that drops out entirely from society, goes on the run after they get in trouble with the law. Two parents, six kids, no money, making do as they can for seven years. And how did the kids turn out after all that? Well, actually, surprisingly, kind of great. The family's called the Jarvises. This American Life producer, Alex Bloomberg, visited them in Florida. Here's a typical scene in the life of the Jarvis family. 
The kids are gathered around a shallow well, maybe three feet deep, and an alligator is trapped inside. Their first instinct? Rescue the poor thing. Poor thing, yeah. James, just put your hand down there and pull it out. Mm. No, I don't want to do it. He just keeps whipping so fast. Stick your hand in his mouth, see you go. That's Anna, 14, the youngest girl, advising her brother Cy, 21, to stick his hand in the alligator's mouth. Cy has a different idea, a completely ingenious one. And in a moment, he's holding a kind of makeshift noose in his hand. I'm going to take this snare that I got, and I'm going to put it over his mouth, and then I'm going to pull it tight so he can't bite. And you, where'd you get that snare? I uh, just made it real quick. Whipped it out of, out of some string and some sticks. Come on there, Gator, just relax, just relax. For seven years, the Jarvis family lived on the run. In a treehouse in a cypress swamp, in the rotting hull of a boat, anywhere they could hide. But before that, for over 20 years, they lived in a house they built themselves, far from anyone, in the middle of a forest in West Virginia. They grew most of their own food in their garden. A natural gas well on their property powered their appliances. They had no electric bill, no heating bill. This is the mom, Eileen Jarvis. We just wanted to make our own little world, really and have uh, our handle on it. I feel like my kids, uh, uh, they grew up in Never Never Land. <laughs> they, uh, well, they had uh, 140 acres plus to run around and play in, and uh, they used every bit of it. They had a, a tree house or a fort in every tree. Eileen and her husband Ron were 60s back to the land dropouts. It actually stayed dropped out. Their home in the 1990s looked a lot like it did in the 1970s. Vegetarian dinners, barefoot children, lots of wood carvings. Even the crops they grew were the same, which in 1992 became a problem when a helicopter spotted a marijuana patch Ron was growing on their property. My son Asa was going to cut the grass, and he had the lawnmower on, and I had dinner cooking. Uh, and uh, Asa, come ru- she came running in the house, and he said, uh, you know, Dad said to get in the van, you know. So we just, we just left. Left the stove on, the pressure cooker on, <laughs> dinner in the coffee. I had just made a pot of coffee and poured it up, and we took nothing with us. Nobody, the kids didn't have shoes on their feet, and... Uh, We just walked out of the house, and that was it. If you ask Ron Jarvis about the marijuana patch today, he says he planted it earlier in the year, right after his wife was diagnosed with cervical cancer, to sell and pay for her treatments. He also says he smoked pot regularly his whole life, and some of his kids did too. I still don't see myself as a criminal, but my decision to grow that pot caused my family to have to suffer that trauma. And it's one of the things that I feel really responsible for. It wasn't a good decision. The Jarvises hit the road, and it was hard. They couldn't stay with anyone they knew without implicating them into their crime. They couldn't drive their van. They couldn't rent an apartment or get a job without showing ID. And they couldn't show ID without popping up on a background check. They had six kids the youngest seven years old, and they had seven dollars in their pocket. In retrospect, Eileen says she and Ron were just trying to do the right thing. I knew I was going to be arrested. I knew they weren't going to let me take my kids to jail with me. (laughs) 
No, I just knew it wasn't going to be good. It wasn't going to be good. You know, all of a sudden I think all my kids are going to be scattered out in the foster homes. I'm not, everything's flowing through my head. No, they weren't going to, uh, it just wasn't going to be good. The Jarvis has caught some lucky breaks. A family friend who happened to be passing through that day and happened to be driving a van took them to Maryland, where all eight of them crashed in a friend's one-room attic. And for two months, it went like this. Ron and his friend would get up before dawn, drive to the forest and collect wood. By sunup, they were back at the house, out in the backyard, cutting and bending it into benches, tables, and chairs. The kids all helped, sanding, finishing, weaving seat bottoms. If it rained, they put plastic tarps over their heads. Once they got a big enough furniture pile, they'd go to boat shows around Annapolis and sell it by the side of the road. I would have like a reoccurring dream, and I know that some of my kids would too, of uh, just walking through that house uh, and looking at everything. But you're not there to stay. You're just walking through the house. And uh, I would just see it all. The playroom where the kids played, all their toys they'd had through all the years, you know, the lofts that they slept in. I mean, I could just see everything. And... uh, the one thing that I would always be focusing on in my dreams would be grabbing that Swiss Army knife. <laughs> well, I'm going through the kitchen really slow and grabbing that Swiss Army knife so I had it with me. <laughs> Are you serious? I'm, not, I'm very serious. I'm very serious. I, I, I didn't really realize that we were going to have to like leave there forever. This is the oldest girl, 19-year-old Molly Jarvis. I kind of figured we were going to be able to go back in a few days. You know, <laughs> That's what I figured. I was thinking, you know, where are we going to stay for a few days until we go back? <laughs> the boat that would eventually be their home was at that point at a dock in the Annapolis Yacht Club. The club was planning to saw it up, sell it for scrap. But when Ron asked about it, they said they'd sell it to him instead for $5,000. It was full of holes, half rotted out. Exchanging a cramped attic for a dilapidated boat that barely floats might not seem to be such a great trade. But the day the Jarvises finally moved in was one of the happiest in a long time. They patched the holes with tar and plywood, stowed all their stuff in the hull, and had a friend tow them to what would become home for the next two years, down the bay to a marina called Backyard Boats. Manager, Ginger Griffith. Right there, that, the, what looks like a big slip from here, mm-hmm. that's where they pulled in when they first came here. Uh, one of the guys in the yard came in the office and said, Ginger, there's a boat here wants to be hauled, but I think you better look at it. So I walked, I said, okay. So I came out, and I really walked down to just about where we are now. So what, 50 feet from the dock? And I just took one look at that and said, boy, what, you know, in my heart, what a sight that is. It was leaking. They had water, they had pumps going on it. I don't know, probably four or five pumps running full-time to keep it floating. The family looked tired. And I thought, oh, you know, a mother, all those children on that boat, thank God it's not me. <laughs> it was, it just, you know, just touched me right away seeing them. I, I, it would, I, I can't see how it wouldn't touch anybody if they could have seen them that way. You could tell that this was not a family at its best. The Jarvises were not the typical backyard boats customer. For one thing, 
most customers didn't bring their boat in for repairs with their entire eight-person family aboard. For another thing, most customers went home after the boat was hauled out of the water and placed on jacks in the repair lot. They didn't do what the Jarvises did, which was climb aboard the boat, suspended on its jacks, and proceed to live on it while they repaired it. It was cramped in there. The three girls slept in a room the size of two refrigerator boxes, too low to stand in, even if you're a 12-year-old girl. The planking was all in the process of being replaced, so there were holes in the hull which they covered with plastic tarps. They bathed in a shower they rigged up, under the boat, behind makeshift plywood walls. And for two years, they lived without the slightest bit of privacy from each other. They couldn't make a move without everyone else in the family knowing about it. But none of this bothered them. 19-year-old Molly and her 17-year-old sister Lily explain what did. There was people. <laughs> there was lots of people, which wasn't a normal thing in West Virginia. <laughs> you know, because we used to be back in the woods and all of a sudden we're just like right in the middle of town. Everything was different about it. Everything. You'd see different people every day. That was not normal. You know, we had like regular friends and it's the first time we could, you know, walk down the street to your friend's house. It's like we had company every day. And what, what was it like going over to your... Did their parents ever ask you, you know, oh, so what do your parents do and that sort of thing? Um, like, people ask you, you know, why did your parents, you know, sell their farm in West Virginia, you know, just to live on that ratty old boat? And <laughs> well, I don't know. They just like boats, you know. And, um, and what do you say? I don't know. You just kind of talk your way out of it. Just be vague. That was hard, but um, that just can't be a casual conversation. I was just always afraid of getting someone else in trouble. To the best of my knowledge, no one knew anything you know, about any details of their past. Again, backyard boats manager Ginger Griffith. In fact, I mean, let's see. After it was a long time, but it became very normal. We just didn't think anything other than the fact that maybe they were sort of like hippies and enjoyed living in their boat in the, under the primitive conditions, that that's what they chose to do. We even forgot about the fact that there may have been a story behind this and just kind of accepted that that's the way they wanted to live. And if people would ask, you'd say, oh, well, you know, they're fine. They just like to live like that. Over time, the Jarvises played a larger and larger role in the community. Eileen got a job helping Ginger manage the office at the marina. The oldest boy, Yanti, started working as a rigger, and his brothers, Aza and Sai, were hotly sought after to race other people's boats. The girls were still homeschooled, but they babysat and got jobs detailing boats, running the fuel dock. The Jarvises had taken the classic fugitive trajectory and reversed it. They hadn't fled civilization for isolation. They'd been flushed out of isolation, and they could only get away by blending back into civilization. What was it like becoming friends with, with sort of more typical American kids? Um, I mean, it was okay. I mean, it, it really wasn't that different, you know? Really? No. I didn't think it was that hard. It wasn't know? different at all? Like, they, they go home to their house, they watch their TV, and you go home to a boat and roll out your bed? That wasn't different? It didn't feel like it was different? <laughs> it was just what we did, so I just thought that was normal, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> live in houses and some kids live on boats <laughs> some kids live in tree houses so. but the other thing that's amazing to me is that you were doing this at you know at the age when like when I was 13 or 12 or 13 that was the worst 
most that was when I was most susceptible to peer pressure mm-hmm. and when I felt most like an outcast mm-hmm. and when I felt like I was you know I felt like I felt like I was different than everybody and, I, and it was a horrible feeling and here you were actually different than everybody but mm-hmm. you didn't feel that way no none of the kids were mean to us or anything uh-huh. nobody was ever mean to us never and uh no I didn't we didn't feel weird or I mean we knew we were different I guess but we didn't feel like we were inferior to anybody. I should mention here another fact about the Jarvises. They're all, from the oldest boy to the youngest girl, beautiful. The girls have silky, long, blonde hair. The boys are tanned, high-cheekboned, and muscly. If there were a movie version of their story, it might be the only film in history where the Hollywood actors are actually less good-looking than the people they're portraying. Combine this with the fact that they're all incredibly talented, they're unfailingly polite, good-natured, and thoughtful, they seem to have no familiarity with adolescent angst, and that for years they emerge this way each morning, radiant and glowing, from within the hull of a half-built boat on jacks in a gravel repair lot. You can see why people are impressed. Here's Ginger Griffith. They just were an inspiration. I mean, you just think, what an ideal family. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be neat to have a family that you know, involved with each other and concerned. I mean, the children were making, the little girls were making baskets and painting pictures, and it was all so good. And and the mother would take time to acknowledge what they were doing and to advise them or, you know, praise them or whatever, and all in such a positive way that the girls would just skip out of here and inspired to do even more. You know, it's just, it's wonderful. After two years at Backyard Boats, the sharp spike of adrenaline that every Jarvis felt at the sight of a flashing blue light had softened into a dull jab. The boat was beautiful, all hand-carved wood, and two months away from being seaworthy. And the Jarvises themselves were two months away from disappearing onto the sea. And then they got a call from Ron's sister. The FBI had threatened to put her in jail. She'd had to tell. They were on their way. Once again, the Jarvises grabbed what they could and left. I just figured we were always going to live like this. Again, the oldest daughter, Molly. I mean, I thought we were always going to almost get caught, just like we always did, and then always get away. That's what I figured. But I didn't, I didn't think they were ever going to get caught. I didn't, think that, I, didn't, I didn't really think that was ever going to happen. Oh, this is too much. We haven't been here. I haven't been here since... Probably 97. What are we looking at here? We're looking at our tree house, <laughs> our, our other home sweet home. <laughs> I'm standing in the middle of a cypress swamp on the Sewanee River in western Florida with five of the eight Jarvises. They've brought me here to show me one of the last places they lived during their life on the run. Are the floors rotten, Molly? The tree house is about 10 feet off the ground, suspended in the V's of two large oak trees. Ron built it out of swamp cypress himself, using only a handsaw. It took him one month. We go up a staircase built of unfinished cypress branches lashed together. Inside, it rivals anything you've seen on Gilligan's Island. This was the living room, and we had a chair here, and we had a, uh, a settee here, and another chair in here somewhere. This held all our uh, fruits and veggies, this hollow log. And over here we had a... Uh, Ron had built a fireplace. And... Uh, we found this picnic tabletop floating down the river, floating too. Floating down the river, and this was a find. A tabletop, so we brought that up here, and Ron made this bar for us so we could eat around it. 
The Jarvises only lived in the treehouse for two months before a nosy game warden forced them to move on again. From there, they went back and forth around Florida. They were living on their boat in a marina in St. Augustine when marshals finally caught them. Eileen says that they'd felt for months that they should move on, but that life had gotten comfortable, the boys with their own boats, everybody working a good job, the family all together. When agents finally did show up, it wasn't a surprise, really. Eileen went to jail for three months, Ron for a little over two years. It's surprisingly beautiful in the swamp. The river is wide, and there's herons flying and nesting all along it. The girls swim and splash in the water. Eileen tells me that their years on the run have affected each of her children differently. And once it gets dark, while she and the girls go and prepare dinner, I talk to her youngest boy, Cy, who's 21, and whose outlook differs quite a bit from his sister's and mother's, about what he's learned since the family first fled West Virginia. We really didn't know how people were, and people are basically beasts. And, uh, because most people aren't very friendly. Of course, you know, we were lucky there in Shadyside. A lot of them people were basically friendly people. They were primitive thinkers, but, but they were real friendly, and they were nice people, and most of them were just out to help, you know, instead of out to get you. They were out to help you. And, uh, you know, like during wintertime, we didn't have no money, and, uh, we didn't basically have no walls around us because they were all so rotten, and, uh, and people were all the time coming by and offering us heaters and blankets and all kinds of stuff, you know. So it was nice of them, you know. Mm-hmm. All the people around there were great. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, like I say, they were basically primitive thinkers, but they were really nice people. What I do you mean, mean by that? Primitive thinkers? Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, what I mean by that is they don't mind, <laughs> they don't mind, you know, eating meat and smoking cigarettes, and they don't mind, like, running over that animal that crosses the road, and they don't mind just shooting something, and they don't mind killing something, they don't mind driving their diesel boats all over the place and spilling motor oil in the water. And you know, The words they say, they're, they're pretty much foul, and uh, stuff they discuss don't need to be discussed around kids and, and family and don't need to be discussed, period. That's what I mean by primitive uh-huh. thinkers, just not really understanding what, what right is and what wrong is. They don't know the difference between the two. Uh-huh. Does it, is is a um, primitive thinker? Is that is that your term or is that your dad's term? Is that something that? That's my term. Uh-huh. That's what I've learned. Uh-huh. You, the rest of your family doesn't seem to doesn't seem to feel this way exactly. No, they don't seem to feel this way because uh, because I don't know they they watch a little bit more TV than me and they listen to more radio and I'm not attacking them when I say it but yeah they're they're primitive thinkers and. Uh, it's not like I made this stuff up. I just deal on a level of right and wrong. How did you come by your notion of right and wrong? I didn't come by it. It's uh, it's right and it's wrong. There's not two different rights and there's not two different wrongs. But I mean, how did you how how, how did you figure it out then? I mean, how how how, um, how do you explain the fact that that other people don't know it and you do? Well, what I see as being wrong is what has happened to my dad. That's what I see as being wrong. You know, they can come into your house with guns and, and point the guns at you and take what's yours and uh, and do whatever they want. You know, they can come into your house and they can stomp their, their cigarette butts out on your carpet and they can pull all your clothes out and throw it on the floor and they can go through your cabinets and dump flour on the floor and your oatmeal and everything on the floor, you know, just to make a mess. It's not like you're hiding something in the oatmeal. And why do they need to do that? And uh, 
They can kick down your doors and break out your windows, and they can walk through your house, and they can put anything they want in their pockets. And, uh, for what reason? Because he grew some marijuana and smoked marijuana? Did he force anybody else to smoke this marijuana? No, he didn't. Did he, you know, was he shooting anybody over this marijuana? You know, no, he wasn't. He was teaching us kids how to build furniture and how to be real men. And he had time to do all that because he smoked the marijuana and he had time to sit and think about what he had to do. And uh, so what happened to him was wrong. That's what happened to him, the wrong thing. What he was doing was right. Most of the family wouldn't maybe put it the way Cy does. But they all claim some version of the separation he feels from the world at large. Molly and Lily say they feel older than everyone they meet. Eileen says she sometimes feels she's on the outside looking in. The trade-off is what they do have. A fierce, unyielding, unbreakable devotion to each other. Alright, so you got a song for us? Uh, no, I don't really know any songs. I can only make noise. When I visit, the Jarvises are living on the boat they first bought in Maryland, the one they rebuilt themselves, made beautiful. They all gather in the galley most nights to eat. A lot of times, Cy and Yancy will get out their guitars. Aza plays the drums, and the family sings. There they are, in this self-contained world they've built themselves, by hand, together. From the boat, you can see the shoreline of the United States of America. Alex Bloomberg. Coming up, two people try to nudge themselves out of limbo and closer to everyday American life. Guess just how many of them succeed. Just guess. In a minute, from Public Radio International, when our program continues. American Life from Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, American Limbo, stories of people who have accidentally ended up outside the grid of normal American life. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, What's French for Strike 3? This is the story of an American in Paris who chose to live in Paris, but decided at some point that he wanted to nudge his kid toward a little more Americanness. But when one does this kind of thing, it's on instinct, and it's a guess, and you cannot tell how it'll come out. Here is that dad to tell the story, Adam Gopnik. 
I don't really remember how we first thought of the rookie. I think it may have been right after I saw my son Luke, who had just turned three, playing with a soccer ball in the Luxembourg Gardens. It wasn't just the kicking that scared me, but the kind of nonchalant, bend-of-the-body, European thing he did as he rose to meet the ball with his head. Next, he would be wearing those terrible shorts and bouncing the ball from foot to foot, improving his skills. He had been born in New York, but he had no memory of it. Paris is the only home he knows. You want to have a catch? I said, and he looked at me blankly. That night at bedtime, I said, Hey, I'll tell you about the rookie. It was eight o'clock. The sun was still out, but the sounds had become less purposeful. You could hear small noises, high heels on the pavement. And though this is a pleasant time to lie in bed in Paris, it is not an easy time for a small boy to go to sleep. I had been drawing storytelling duty for a while and had made increasingly frantic efforts to find a hit, like a network programmer back home massaging the schedule. A story about a little boy who turned into a golden fish in Venice hadn't gone anywhere, and a remake of The Hobbit had done no box office at all. This story, though, rolled out easy. The rookie, I said, was a small boy in Anywhere USA in the spring of 1908. Out walking with his mom one day, he discovered that he had an uncanny gift for throwing stones at things. He picked one up and threw it so hard that it knocked a robin off its perch a mile away. And then, after his mama chided him, he threw another one, just as far, but so softly that it snuggled into the nest beside the bird without breaking an egg. His parents, a little sadly, but with a sense of obligation, immediately sent him off on the train to New York to try out for the New York Giants and their great manager, John J. McGraw. All he took with him was a suitcase that his mother had packed for him, filled with things, including his bottle, that she thought might be useful in case of an emergency. He got out at Grand Central, took a cab all the way uptown to the polo grounds, his mother had told him to take taxis in New York, and asked to see John J. McGraw. McGraw, staccato and impatient, was at first skeptical, but he finally agreed to watch while the kid threw because he was so polite and the letter from his parents was so insistent and because, well, you never know. He called Big Six, the great Christy Mathewson, out of the dugout to watch, and Chief Myers, the great American Indian catcher, to get behind the plate. The chief came out with a weary, crippled, long-suffering gait and squatted. I thought of the chief as a creased veteran, though the real chief was still in his 20s and not yet even a giant. The little guy walked to the mound, tugged at his cap, not a baseball cap, the cap of his knickers suit, and let fly. Everybody was impressed, to put it mildly. Hey, Mr. McGraw, cried the chief. I ain't never seen speed like that, and ain't he got movement on it, too? Well, Maddie said mildly, peering at the tiny, dotty figure on the mound. When you think about it, he's more or less got to have that upward movement on his fastball, don't he? My ideas of credible 1908 ballplayer dialogue were heavily influenced by Ring Lardner. McGraw shrugged, since tryouts were one thing and baseball was another. But in the end, he decided to give the kid a start that Sunday in a big benefit exhibition that the Giants were playing at the polo grounds against the Detroit Tigers. I stopped. Outside, we could hear the steady stop-and-start, rhythmic passage of the sanitation workers. Impossibly chic, in grass-green uniforms with a white stripe running down the side, the men of the Paris Propre came down our street every night to collect the garbage. 
Go on, Luke ordered. Muffled but sharp from under his covers. Stop thinking. In the benefit exhibition that Sunday, I went on at last. The big bathtub-shaped stadium, with its strange supporting wide beams, was packed with fans come to see the three-year-old Fino. The rookie took the mound, throwing smoke. And fans, it looked as though it might be a first, a perfect, perfect game. 27 men up, 27 Ks. Until in the sixth, the rookie had to face the terrible Ty Cobb. Now, I realized I had a problem here, since Cobb should have been batting cleanup from the start. I explained that he had been late suiting up because he insisted on extorting extra payment from the Tigers' management for playing in a charity exhibition, even though everybody else was playing for free. Cobb was just like that, I explained. Terrible. The crowd quieted as the confrontation neared. Cobb came to the plate, sneering and drawling. Hey, baby, he called out, taunting the rookie. Looks to me like you're nothing but a baby. Luke's whole body stiffened. If there was a worse insult, he hadn't heard it. Jackie Robinson, in his first year with the Brooklyn Dodgers, had never been called a name so vile. Shaken, the rookie lost a bit off his heater. It was still blazing, though, and Cobb just got a piece of it, dribbling it towards first. He took off, and the rookie, who knew his assignments, dutifully scampered over to cover. Cobb came in hard, hard as he could, his spikes sharpened to razor tips, and stamped down on the rookie's three-year-old foot safe. Stinking rotten way to get on base, but safe all the same. Shaking off a couple of tears, the rookie went back to the mound. Hey, I reckon you're a crybaby. Hey, everybody, look at the crybaby. Looks to me like you're nothing but a crybaby. Came the taunting Georgia draw from first, and the rookie pitched out of trouble. But the pain lingered, and in the top of the ninth, Giants having pushed over one run on a hit-and-run executed by the chief. He made a few mistakes, walked a couple of batters, hey, he was three, and left himself with the bases loaded and the Georgia Peach due up again. The crowd was going crazy, and now the taunting began again, worse than ever. Hey, baby, hey, crybaby, why don't you cry some more, crybaby? The rookie knew what he had to do. In the dugout, he had taken his old bottle from the suitcase his mother had packed for him when he went off to join the Giants, just in case, and stowed it under his cap. Now, he dripped a couple of drops of milk onto the seams of the baseball, the rookie's soon-to-be-notorious bottle ball. It was before they brought in the rule against foreign substances on the ball, I explained. The rookie was playing fair. Hey, when are you guys going to go to sleep? Luke's mother's voice came from the other room. Soon, I called back abruptly. The lights of the traffic on the Boulevard Saint-Germain came in through the windows, but I didn't even draw the curtains. The rookie stretched and threw, and the bottle ball dipped and twisted and dipped and twisted again, curving all the way out to the third baseline, and then cruising halfway towards first before finally slipping in, softly and cleanly, right across the plate, a strike at the knees. Ty Cobb had time to take a really good cut. He had all day, but the pitch had him so full that he didn't just whiff, He twisted himself in knots while he whiffed, real knots. His whole body pulled around like a wet wash rag, hands ending up back of his butt. Luke chuckled deeply at that. Strike three, cried the umpire, and the bleachers of the polo grounds went nuts. The rookie trotted off the field. Who's the baby now, Mr. Cobb? He asked with quiet dignity on his way back to the dugout. 
My kid sat up, shot up in bed, like a mechanical doll, as though he had a spring hinge right at his waist. Christy Mathewson, I went on, didn't say anything. That, that wasn't his way. But he went over as the rookie came into the dugout, took off the rookie's cap, and mussed up his hair. Outside, the crowd wouldn't leave. They just chanted, Rookie! Rookie! Now the only sound from Luke's pillow was of short, constant breathing. I had the uncanny knowledge of a kind of silent excitement, the certainty. I have witnessed it once or twice in opening night at a theater, though I had certainly never created it before myself, that what we had here was a hit. The terrible Thai cop had called him a baby, and he had thrown the bottle ball, and then who was the baby? That night, I went on, the rookie was offered a contract with the Giants, and the team got on the overnight sleeper to St. Louis, heading out to steamy Sportsman's Park. The chief tucked the rookie into his berth, and before he went off to play pinochle with the guys, asked him, roughly, You okay, rookie? I'm okay, chief, the rookie said. And then he listened to the sounds of the train tracks clacking and the whistle blowing and the other ball players in the next car laughing and playing cards before he fell deep asleep somewhere outside Columbus. I'm okay, chief, Luke repeated. And then he did something he had never done before, or at least not in my presence. Without negotiation or hesitation, without tears or arguments or requests to come and sleep in the big bed, he rolled right over and fell asleep. From then on, we had a story about the rookie every night. After a couple of months, I began to wonder, what picture did he summon up when, night after night, he heard the words, polo grounds, full count, all the way to the backstop? Not an inexact picture, no picture at all. He had never been to a baseball game, never seen a bat or a glove, never been inside a ballpark or even watched a ball game on television. No one Luke knew played baseball, no one talked about it. The words and situations were pure language, pure abstract lore. The cliches I rolled out, he had all day, steamy sportsman's park, no foreign substances on the old pill. What did he think? What did he see when he heard them? I knew that he wanted to hear the words as much as I needed to say them. He zipped through dessert to get to bed every night. But what did the words mean to him? I had spent my adult life believing that storytelling depends on the credibility of its details, now, finally, I had made up a story that someone liked, and the details had no credibility at all. No existence except as sounds. You are supposed to use a word, I had always been taught, to point at a thing, and hope that the thing will somehow end up pointing at something bigger, a feeling, a state of mind. But now I said, polo grounds or full count, and the words called up in my son a powerful reaction. But what of that second range where the words were supposed to become things, even just images in his head. There is, I think, a force in stories, words in motion, that either drives them forward past things, directly into feelings, or doesn't. And the trouble is you don't know which way they're going until you've already taken your swing. Sometimes the words fly right over the fence and all the way out to the feelings. Make them do it one time out of three in private, and you've got a reputation as someone who can play a little, a dad who can tell a decent bedtime story. Do it three times out of five in public, and you're Mark McGuire, or Dickens. After about a year of telling the rookie story, I went to New York to give a talk, and I turned the trip into a literary mission, a sort of rookie collecting expedition. 
I wanted to bring home tangible evidence of something that, as a matter of fact, had never taken place there. I bought a baseball encyclopedia and a box of books on the Cobb era and borrowed a Ken Burns video on baseball. A vintage Giants cap child size, which I thought would be the hardest thing to find, turned out to be absurdly easy. The past is so neatly packaged now that I just walked into a memorabilia store on Lexington Avenue and found a replica cap, no problem. When I got home to Paris, I put on the video from the PBS baseball series, which I had never seen, and we watched all those flickering, over-frantic little ghost figures racing around. There was Ty Cobb looking appropriately evil. There was John J. McGraw. There were pitching and batting. I realized from Luke's comments that he had them the wrong way around. There was base running. There was Christy Mathewson, and then a picture of Maddie, handsome and assured as ever, slowly dissolving into a picture of a small, serious boy with blonde bangs, wearing a baseball cap and a perfectly sober expression, going into a pitching windup. I still have no idea who he actually was. It's not Christy Mathewson's kid. I found a picture of him, and he had darker hair. But of course, Luke knew who it was perfectly well. There he is, he said. Rewind it. We watched Maddie and the rookie appear again, and then he told me to turn it off. He was uncharacteristically silent for the rest of the afternoon, but before dinner I heard him talking to his mother in the back. He had his hands up like this, he was saying chattily. I don't know why. That was enough excitement, enough reality for one day, I thought. And it wasn't until a week later that I tried out on him a picture of the chief, an honest-to-God picture of Chief Myers, looking just as he ought to look. Hey, look, that's the chief, I announced proudly, opening the old baseball encyclopedia at his bedside. He paused, looked at the picture, looked back at me, peering in for a moment. And then he got a funny, guilty smile on his face that I had never seen there before. Oh, he said, peering intently at the picture. I thought it was his mother. What do you mean? I said, surprised. I mean, I knew it was, but I thought it was. I mean, I knew it was a man, but I thought he was the mother, he concluded, stumbling a little. I thought it was his mother. He actually blushed, and I could sense that there was something at once so deep and so important going on in what he was trying to tell me that he feared at some other level it would seem silly. In his mind's ear, he could hear Ty Cobb calling, Baby! But remember, I said, his mother packed the suitcase for him. He had the mama's suitcase. I know, I know that, he said quietly, stubbornly. I can't, I just thought... He held his hand up to his head, and he tried to smile. I, th I thought it was a girl. I thought it was his mama. I got it then. He knew that the word, the chief, stood for some kind of older man. Though whether he could have summoned up this kind of older man, a bearded, grizzled, 40-ish American Indian catcher with boozy breath, I'm not sure. But the symbolic place that he occupied was so deeply maternal that it was, well, he was his mother. What had been lulling him to sleep, night after night, I realized, was not the all-purpose fit. These words pointed directly to the symbol, and it was the obvious one, but it wasn't my symbol. The trouble with mental catch is that the ball you throw changes in midair into another. Staring down into the polo grounds, what he had seen was what he needed to see. And that was the same face he saw at every window. His mama had been there at his bedside all along, and I had been too slow a reader of my own fiction to spot her lurking.
Lukey's story goes on, but over time, at Luke's urging, it became more and more detached from baseball. The rookie entered a gothic phase as the little boy began to demand scary rookie stories. With a real witch, not Ty Cobb dressed up like a witch, not the chief dressed up like a witch, a real witch. Over time, inside the rookie's suitcase, the one his mom had packed the day he left for New York, the rookie has come to find a complete dictionary of the animal languages, a saxophone, a design for the first car radio, compressed early rocket ship refueling pills, a map of Paris, a window defogger, a time machine, a map of a secret route to the South Pole, and reindeer medicine for Santa's team. The story belongs to Luke now. I don't think about the rookie as much as I used to, but when the bombs began to fall in Serbia, I began thinking about that other Serbian conflagration in 1914 and everything it had led to. And I realized with a start that by making the rookie three years old in 1908, I was leaving him unprotected to the century's horrors. Then I did a quick calculation and realized that he would have been far too young for the First World War and just too old for the Second. The rookie was lucky that way, I think. Luke and I tried playing a little catch this spring in the Luxembourg Gardens, but gave up after about five minutes. For a present around that time, he asked us to make him his own carte d'identité, marked with a métier de journaliste, a press pass from the government like the one I have, so that he could pretend to cut through red tape. We made him an impressive-looking fake French government document with a black-and-white photo and lots of cryptic official-looking stamps. At bedtime now, before the rookie story starts, he likes to act out a French bureaucratic drama. I play a functionary guarding an entrance to something or other who scowls at him until he haughtily flashes his carte, and then I let him pass with many apologetic Ah, monsieur, I did not recognize grimaces and shrugs, while his mother acts out the role of irate bystander, fuming in line as the privileged functionary serenely passes by. I suppose it's about time we took him home. Adam Gopnik's story, The Rookie, can be found in his book, Paris to the Moon. He's a writer for The New Yorker magazine. Act 3. It's Julie Andrews' world. Sylvia just lives in it. A few years ago, on her 18th birthday, Sylvia Lemus came onto our program and talked about her life. Her parents are immigrants, very traditional, from Mexico, and they wanted her to get married right away, have babies. But Sylvia grew up in this country, and she thought like an American girl. She wanted to go to college, get an interesting job, all that before she started a family. Here's what she said at the time. My mom has lived in a box all her life. And I sometimes, like, once in a while, I escape from the box. And sometimes I'll just, like, you know, try to climb out. And she's, like, pushing me in. Or I'm trying to, like, poke a hole in the box. And she tapes it right back up. Sometimes we get into fights. And I tell my mom, I'm like, I'm not like my cousins. I'm not. I'm like, my cousins are already, like, 19, 18. And they're already pregnant and married. I'm like, is that what you want me to do with my life? At that time, Sylvia had a perfectly clear picture of what she wanted her life to be. She'd work in a big open office with lots of computers and gadgets, doing computer animation on films like Jurassic Park and Men in Black. You know, sitting in, in front of the computer and doing all these, you know, things on the computer and animating and getting really frustrated because it takes me like six months to do like a five-second little scene and 
have like an eyebrow ring or something on, have my hair whatever color I want. After that interview, Sylvia started hanging around her office, became an intern on her show. And then she went away to college, to a school that she chose because they teach computer animation, the Rochester Institute of Technology in New York. She took one of our tape recorders with her and recorded now and then, tape diaries about her experience in college and moments with her friends. We've pulled some clips from the tape, and I talked to her about it all. So Sherry invited us to a crew party, and um, there's this guy named Zach who um, showed us to the boathouse. And oh my God, to a city girl, this was amazing. Okay, the boathouse had no lighting whatsoever. And above that, you see stars. Not city stars, like one or two stars. A lot of stars. And I looked up and I was amazed. And I, the first thing I said, oh my God, look, there's a box. Apparently it's like the Big Dipper or the Little Dipper. I'm not quite sure exactly what it was. And they were, they were kind of laughing at me because I'm like, oh my God, there's a box. You know, a box was shaped there. Can I also get a strawberry smoothie with whipped cream? Thank you. Scotty. What exactly is that? You know how uncultured I am. I know you're from Chicago, so. Just telling you people that everything here is universal. The biscotti is just like a crunchy biscuit type thing. So those have chocolate, some of them have almonds, some of them are chocolate altogether. Don't you remember I brought them in with my fruit roll ups? Yeah, but I didn't taste them. I I know, but you asked me what it is, like if you didn't know. Do you feel like your, your friends at school uh, um, understand you? A lot of times, no. I don't think they do. Like, I've never saw, seen this, the sound of music or something. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Or something in a chocolate factory. That I, I've never seen will, any will of that stuff. In the chocolate factory. Yeah, I've never seen any of that stuff. And I'm just used to, like, you know, going to an all-ghetto school where everybody speaks Spanglish and... I listen, you know, and pe- like loud music is blaring outside our window like 24-7. And they just like, they're like, oh my gosh, she's so different. She's not like what we grew up with, you know. Where's your sister? My sister's that little one with the little new kids on the block shirt. That's when she was like six. Now oh, she's 13. Oh, like real pictures of her? Yeah, I do have real pictures of her. <laughs> Why? That's her right there. That's my brother and that's me. Yeah. These are my grandparents in Mexico. Oh, wow, they look so original. That looks so cool. They look original? What do you mean original? I don't know. They look cool. I like their outfits and everything. Very yeah, that's uh, traditional. Mexican. Yeah, that's very Mexican outfits. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Traditional, not original. Have there been classes that you've really loved? Um, I liked... My visual anthropology class, because like for the first time in a really long time, I felt like I can do what everybody else did was study the night before and get the exact same grade. Like that was the only class where I felt like I didn't have to try as hard and get less grades. Like I I tried exactly the same as they did and I got the exact same grade. I yeah. loved that class. You're saying you loved it because it was kind of easy. Yeah, and I loved it because we had to do an ethnographic film and we had to go. We decided to shoot drag queens, and it was like the best thing ever. Like, I went out like all the time. Like the last two weeks, we went out all the time to shoot them at 
to shoot like at the Miss Rochester, uh, Miss Gay Rochester pageant, and we shot them at their clubs and them dressing. And I came home drunk all the time. It was like the funnest thing ever. I think that's why I like the class so much because I always got drunk at the end. <laughs> How hard were your actual classes uh, for you? They were hard. It just seemed like no matter how hard I tried, I never, I was never able to compete with them. Like, I think a lot of it has to do with that they went to. It's obvious that they went to better schools than I did, and I went to, like, you know, I went to, like, I don't even bother telling them that I was one of like top kids in my class. I'm like, what, what are they gonna say? You know, like, you were, like, yeah. what the hell happened? Here's a recording that you made right after you got back to school, after going home to Chicago for Christmas break. January second, I went to my cousin's baby shower. Everybody was there when we got there, so I had to go around the whole entire place, you know, greeting everybody, the handshake, the kiss, the hug, the kiss, the handshake, blah blah blah. It took me like 15 minutes to greet everybody because there was at least like a, like 50 or 60 women. So I sat down with all my aunts and um, all my aunts and cousins, and everybody in that table was married with kids. I was the only one without a child or a husband. And so we just like oh it was it was kind of bad. I mean just I just noticed like nobody was in college, nobody was, you know, going for a profession, you know. I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> I really don't. And and I hate it. I hate that, you know, I spend most of my time like at Rochester, I spent most of my time wanting to be Mexican and wanting to hang out with Hispanic people. And then when I go to my family, I can't. It's like I spend half of my time defending where I'm from and where I was raised and why I was raised the way I was. And then I'm stuck here. And I'm basically defending something I don't even feel I'm part of. Hey, Sylvia, one of the things that happened uh, during your first year when you were away at school is that at some point uh, you came back home and you went to uh, the baptism of a baby uh, who who was uh, the baby of a cousin of yours. Wait, hold on. I'm trying to remember which baptism it was. This, you have a cousin who, whose uh, husband's in construction, and she works, and they have a three-room house. Oh, yeah, Christina. Ugh. Okay, so I go to her house. Her house. She's 19, and she has a house. I go to her house, and she lives next in a very nice neighborhood, not that far away from mine. And she works for a bank, and she makes pretty good money. And um, she only has a high school degree. She got married when she was, I think she got married like two weeks shy of her 17th birthday. She had her kid when she was um, 19. And so she's having her daughter's baptism. And she has this beautiful house, like this like three-bedroom attic and basement house. And it's well-decorated. And I think I'm like, hello, like this is exactly the things that they tell you not to do because this is not going to happen. If you get married, you're not going to have a house because out of a high school degree, you don't really make that much money. But I'm like, why are they able to buy a house? And all I keep thinking is, oh, my God, I live in Rochester. I'm going to be living in an apartment the size of a closet with a roommate, you know. It was just like it was just like a backslap. Like, you know, I was already having problems with school. And then I come here and it's like, oh, look, we lied. 
Did you feel like all of us who, who have ever told you um, that it would be a good idea to go away to college and get a degree? You guys are liars. Really? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> like, sometimes I'm like, I think they lied to me. I think they did. <laughs> but I know, like, the feelings I'm having right now are just because I'm having problems, but... At this point, I don't see the happiness I saw when I was in high school. Like, remember when I told you I I pictured to have, like, this huge, like, office with toys and computers and stuff like that? Yeah. I don't, I don't see that anymore. Like, right now, it seems like it's a scam and I was fooled into something that I was naive enough to think that this, that that dream could actually happen, you know? Sylvia, do you think that if you had quit the, the life that you're having right now and try to move back uh, to the neighborhood where you grew up and meet somebody and have babies and have a house, do you think I'd you could miserable. even do that? You'd be miserable. No. I'd be miserable. Why? Because that's not the life I want. It's like that's not the life I want, but this life isn't like being very accepted to me, you know? So you're kind of, so you're kind of stuck. Uh, yeah, yeah. I am, aren't I? I am stuck. Well, time passed again, and two years after that interview was recorded, Sylvia graduated from the limbo that was RIT in 2003. And since then, she's been living in a different kind of limbo in Los Angeles, working various jobs, trying to break into film production. She still sees very similar pros and cons to the choices that she's made. Right now she works for a multimedia company in Hollywood. Well, our program was produced today by Blue Chevney and myself with Alex Plumberg, Jonathan Goldstein, and Starley Kine. Our senior producer, Julie Snyder. Production help from Annie Baxter and Todd Bachman. Special thanks today to Devin Spurgeon, Chris Bolt, Larry Jefferson, Mickey Delaney, Anna Hidalani, Craig Stewart, Megan Dahm, and Emperor Jones. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life comes from Volkswagen of America and the Phaeton with four-motion all-wheel drive, an adjustable air suspension, and 335-horsepower V8 engine, all standard. It's everything the Volkswagen knows how to do done all at once. Learn more about the Phaeton at VW.com. Our website, www.thisamericanlife.org. We can listen to our programs for absolutely free, 24 hours a day. You know, you can download today's program and our archives at audible.com slash thisamericanlife. WBEZ management oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, every time he sees me in the hall, he taunts me. He taunts me this way. Hey, everybody, look at the crybaby. Hey, baby. Hey, crybaby. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Why don't you cry some more, crybaby? R.I. Public Radio International.